Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Friday, July 10th. Stocks were up on promising COVID treatment news. Global merger activity is down nearly 40%. And we're focused on how not all coronavirus outbreaks are created equal. The big story today is the same as it has been for weeks, the rapidly increasing number of coronavirus infections. We're also seeing big rises in deaths and a record number of hospitalizations in Florida. Most of the focus, both back in March and today, has obviously been on the cities, originally New York, now Miami and Houston, because of their density and high numbers of cases. But that attention has also engendered a misperception that the virus isn't also taking its toll in more rural areas. To be sure, social distancing is easier outside of cities, but it can also be harder there to find quality medical care, which can contribute to higher morbidity rates. A Georgia microbiologist named Amber Schmidtke has been tracking this trend in her state and finds that the lowest death rates for infected people between the ages of 40 and 69 are actually in Atlanta, the state's most populous city. Why it matters is that states are increasingly recognizing that they need to localize public health policy when it comes to COVID-19. Not just things like masks or whether or not to open schools, but even how healthcare is distributed. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on this with Amber Schmidtke. But first, this. We're joined now by Amber Schmidtke, Assistant Professor of Microbiology at Mercer University's School of Medicine. So Amber, let's just start kind of big picture here. You've spent the last several months watching the numbers of coronavirus cases across the country, but particularly in Georgia. What are the red flags you're seeing right now in terms of how things are trending? Right now, the thing that is most concerning is our surge in cases, but especially our surge in hospitalizations right now. For those that are currently hospitalized, those numbers have been, each day we set a new record, and that's been the case for the last nine days. When you say hospitalizations, you're talking, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, COVID-specific hospitalizations? That is correct. So this is current hospitalizations for COVID-19. One of the things you've written, and I mentioned this in the open, is that Atlanta is doing relatively well. Not well, but relatively well, but that rural parts of the states are facing higher risks. Can you unpack that a bit? Why are rural areas having issues, given that people live further away? There's not as many people in a town, et cetera. Yeah, it's a little counterintuitive because we tend to think of population centers as being the areas with the greatest risk. So Atlanta would make sense in that case. But the problem in Georgia is that a lot of our rural counties are healthcare deserts. They don't have a county hospital or any kind of hospital. And some of them don't have a pediatrician. Some of them don't have an obstetrician. And so there are many different healthcare disparities that have to do with this rural versus urban divide in Georgia. When you think of lockdowns, for example, you would think, oh, it would be a bigger deal for Atlanta, right? Because you have so many more people or for any city that is. But is it also potentially almost harder for a town or a small county or rural county to shut down? Not as many options for, say, takeout restaurants and things like that. That's absolutely right. I mean, in Atlanta or some of our more urban settings, you can have groceries delivered to your door, but that's not really an option in rural Georgia. So social distancing or our effort to stay home and shelter in place, a person's travel from home really doesn't change that much, whether there's a shelter in place order or not, because they still need to get groceries. What's the one number you are most focused on right now? What's the first thing you look at? The first thing I'm looking at, honestly, is the 14-day trend in case increase across our counties. That takes into account what the more recent history is. The public health department has been showing a lot of cumulative data since the beginning of the pandemic, but what happened in April has very little relevance 
relevance to what's happening now. So I've had to go to alternate resources or even manufacture them myself to look at what those 14-day trends are. Just to put some numbers on it, kind of what you're seeing in terms of the morbidity rates in more rural counties in Georgia compared to, say, Atlanta or more dense and, and also actually kind of the infection rate as well. We have seen that the majority of our cases have been coming from non-rural parts of the state that aren't necessarily part of the Atlanta metro. For fatalities are coming from rural counties. So that has been kind of how this has trended over time. How are you seeing public health and elected officials react to that split? You know, it's interesting. About two weeks ago, the governor decided to relocate his makeshift hospital from the Atlanta metro to a town called Milledgeville, which is important because it straddles two hospital regions that have been notoriously lacking in critical care bed capacity. So I think that it was a strategic decision, or at least I hope it was based in data. But you're right. There has been maybe some concern about would we benefit from having a more coordinated response to this pandemic? There was this perception coming out of the White House, particularly that when summer came and it got really hot, that this virus was going to a certain extent peter out. How much of what's happening from your perspective right now in the southeast, particularly, is a reflection of the fact that when it's July in Georgia, people try to be inside in air conditioned buildings, if at all possible? <laughs> That's totally true. We do tend to be inside almost as much as people might during the winter time in other places because it's just unpleasant to be outside. So you're right. There is a lot of congestion indoors potentially even during the summer. If you were governor of Georgia and actually let's go a step further. You were queen of Georgia. You didn't have a legislature to deal with. You could just make changes, legislative changes. What is the one or two things you would do? Right now, we have about 87 counties that have such significant disease transmission that it might be a good idea to consider a shelter-in-place order. We have those surges in cases, surges in hospitalizations, and our communities are doing nothing right now to put the brakes on that increase. And so in the absence of community participation by wearing masks or avoiding unnecessary travel and errands, I think a shelter-in-place order might be needed in order to tamp this disease transmission down. Do you think there's any possibility of getting that in Georgia at this point? I don't think that there is political will to do so right now. Amber, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Gilead Sciences, which this morning said that its remdesivir drug reduces the risk of death in those severely ill with COVID-19. Specifically, it claims to have found that patients taking remdesivir were 62% less likely to die than are those who got standard treatment. The news sent the entire stock market surging at the open this morning. So I asked Axios healthcare reporter Bob Herman whether or not Gilead's report matters. In short, no. I would say it borders on junk science. We have randomized control trial data on remdesivir already, and that showed that remdesivir did not lead to a statistically significant drop in deaths. So what Gilead is putting out here is just a cobbling of observational data that really has no basis when compared to this randomized trial data. If this is junk science, as you say, why would Gilead have put this out? There is data that shows remdesivir is helpful. It helps get coronavirus patients in the hospital, out of the hospital quicker. But there is no statistically significant data showing that remdesivir reduces the risk of mortality. It priced this drug at more than $3,000 for commercial patients. And cost-effectiveness experts have said to be that expensive, it needs to reduce the risk of mortality. Gilead has an incentive to make the drug look like it reduces mortality. 
We're also watching food maker Goya, which is in the midst of a social media boycott after its CEO appeared at the White House yesterday and complimented President Trump. A number of prominent Hispanic celebrities and politicians began circulating a boycott Goya hashtag, but the company's CEO is not apologizing, nor are we likely to know how many bags of beans really do or don't get bought because the 84-year-old company is privately held. Finally, a quick update on TikTok. Earlier this week, we discussed how the Trump administration is thinking about banning the popular social network. Today, Amazon informed all of its employees that they must remove TikTok from their phones or any other device on which they access Amazon email. This is a very big deal. Some TikTok defenders have argued that the White House is just extending its China bashing to the tech sector, or even worse, punishing TikTok for some of its users messing up Trump's Tulsa rally and the ratings for his campaign app. But Amazon, it doesn't care about Trump or any of that. It's a major U.S. tech company telling the world that it too is worried about TikTok malware. The question now is if other big tech companies follow Amazon's lead. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Pina Colada Day. And we'll be back Monday with another Axios Recap.